Jessica. I feel like uh, she did a great job considering that was the most quiet version of announcements I have ever heard in my life. So uh, you all are doing great, but we're going to need to liven up and participate a little bit more. Okay, so will you do me a favor and start that by standing as we read the word of God together? We are going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read a decent portion, verses 19 through 34. It'll be on the screen if you'd like to follow along in your Bible. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also will be also. The eye, of the, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. I'm sorry, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and not the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can be seated. So I am really excited about today's passage, talking about treasure, and it really got me thinking about the things that I have treasured over my lifetime. Uh, Growing up as a kid, there were a few things that I really, really treasured highly, and that list includes things like G.I. Joe action figures. Any G.I. Joe fans in here? Okay, or some iteration of that. I loved my Nintendo Entertainment gaming system. The original 16-bit, yeah, it was so fun. Of course, it grew in to other iterations, still a little bit of gaming here or there. I loved, I had this Seattle Supersonics, like, puffy coat. You know the ones that go for, like, hundreds of dollars now because they're vintage? I guarantee you my mom didn't pay that for it. So I know that wasn't how much they were then. But thank you, Mother. It was a wonderful gift. Uh, And I also had this really sweet Chicago Bulls uh, fitted cap. Uh, Anybody have like the coolest cap in the world hat that they just loved and wore every day? I wore that thing out until my head grew too big to wear it. But I think the thing that I enjoyed the most or that I treasured the most as a child 
was trading cards. Anybody in here enjoy trading cards as a kid? Okay, a couple of us, all right. I absolutely loved trading cards, and specifically for me, it was basketball, uh, it was football, a little bit of baseball. But my love for trading cards was rooted in two things. First, they were, in my mind, the essence of modern relics of my favorite teams and favorite players. Right? They were these things that you could hold on to and touch and see that represented your favorite athletes. Guys like Sean Kemp and Gary Payton and Joey Galloway, Napoleon Kaufman, just a few of my own, all of those Northwest people. These sports cards, they captured um, these great moments in sports, these great players and their great value. And it was all summed up in a little picture that I had in my collection. Right? Like that was one of the things that was great. But the other thing that was great about it was the nature of the hunt. If you collect anything, then you know searching for that thing is part of the joy. Right? There was something magical about you know, going to a card shop um, and that dealer placing a box of unwrapped cards with many, many packages just like this one. And you, know, and you were like, I'm going to pick the one on the bottom because clearly they would put the most valuable cards on the bottom, right? as if they knew. Right? But when you're 10, um, that's what you do. So I would select the perfect pack and I would carefully unwrap it. Um, not to ruffle any edges or bend any corners, because of course that would devalue the card. But I remember one specific moment really, really, really well. It was Christmas Day, 1995, and I opened a package of cards and I pulled out a Emmett Smith, yes, Cowboys fans, anybody? No, okay. An Emmett Smith pigskin preview by Absolute Prime trading cards. Now, I realize that means nothing to you. Uh, I could hardly remember the brand when I was recalling this story myself. But at that moment, I knew it was a big deal. Immediately, I knew it was a big deal. And I had to find out exactly how much was this trading card worth. And so I went to the publication Beckett, Beckett Trading Cards. It was like the Bible for card values. You're all getting a lesson on trading cards right now. You didn't know you were going to get when you came to church. But I went right to it. And once I realized what I had pulled, I did what every experienced card collector did, and I found a protective case, a thick plexiglass thing with four screws on the corners, and I put it in there and I screwed that thing down so that no one would ruin the value of my card. You could always tell what cards had the greatest value because they warranted the most amount of protection, the most amount of preservation. That particular card in 1995 was valued around $300. And for a 10-year-old, that might as well have been like $300,000, right? As a 10-year-old, you're like, what the heck? $300, this is amazing. But what gave that card its value? What gave that little two and a half by three inch piece of multi-ply paper with some picture on it what gave it the value? What made it worth $300? It actually wasn't the cost of the materials, right? It's just paper with a little bit of ink on it, although that can be expensive. And it actually wasn't even the rare nature of the card, although that is part of it. The bottom line is, is the card was valued at what it was worth because someone valued it. Someone wanted it. The bottom line is that that card 
was determined to be something of value because someone else said, I would love that card. And there's only so many of them and I treasure it. And so its value is this. Now out of curiosity, uh, I checked what that particular card was selling for this last week. And that $300 card was now selling for around $40. Yeah. Are the materials the same? Yes, right? Has the rare nature of the card changed? If anything, I think it's more rare because some of those are in the garbage cans of parents who have thrown out all of their kids' trading cards, right? So why did it become less? Well, the reality is less people wanted it, right? And the people who do want it only want it about $40 badly, right? That's just what determines the value of the card. Value comes from the treasured nature of any given thing. Value comes from the treasured nature of any given thing. And in today's passage, as we read, Jesus teaches on the nature of treasure, on the nature of treasure in regard to heaven. And there is a very direct and pointed section of scripture that we find ourselves in today, do we not? Jesus is going to address money, possessions, our relationship to stuff, and what that relationship to money, possessions, and stuff does to our body and to our heart. So now before we dive into that, I think it would be helpful for us to recall where we have been in the sermon, because we're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, basically almost exactly right in the middle. So if you remember back to the beginning of this Um, sermon, Jesus opens up with the Beatitudes. Very famous passage, very famous section of scripture. And these are the traits that a person um, will adopt or exude who want to live Jesus's counter-cultural version of human flourishing. In that particular time period, culture said, this is how you live to flourish. And Jesus was saying, no, no, no. In the kingdom of God, this is how you live to flourish. And then he followed that up with a teaching on salt and light, and it was highlighting this covenant, this new covenant that God was making with humanity through Jesus. It was God's promise to humanity that their salvation was secure through one specific thing and one specific thing alone, faith in Jesus. And then when you have that faith in Jesus, then you are now a representation of that covenant. You are like salt and like light. You add flavor and preservation to culture, and then you add light, you shine your light, the light of God that's inside of you, you bring that to the spaces that are around you. And then Jesus follows that up by teaching on fulfilling the law. And in this part of the sermon, Jesus contrasts righteousness on the external, or righteousness as he talks about it, of the Pharisees, this external kind of behaviorally determined righteousness, with the righteousness that Jesus is advocating for, which is a righteousness of the heart. Jesus says, I'm interested far more in the heart. And then he uses six examples. He says, talks about murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and an eye for an eye idea and loving our enemies. And these examples illustrate that the behavior, that our behavior is rooted in the condition of our heart. That whether our, be- our behavior is healthy or unhealthy, it's all rooted from the condition of our heart. And so then Jesus pivots from the things to avoid, and he goes to the things that we should embrace as followers of Jesus. 
But the common thread remains the same. Behaviors take a back seat to the condition of our heart. Now, last week, if you were here, HR preached an incredible sermon on the gift of prayer. And the big idea was this, that God wants to connect to our heart and connect us to his purposes. He wants access to our heart, which gives him access to the things that we do and to his purposes. And then Jesus gives um, two other examples of these to-do behaviors or these behaviors that we should do, um, and they're in that same category. He talks about giving to the needy and fasting. And now we did not cover those. If you've been following along the whole time, you're like, wait, you didn't preach on those two sections, Rick, and I did not. And one of the reasons is because in January, we're going to do a series that are going to cover both of those. And so we didn't want to overlap too much. But the other reason is that all three examples that Jesus teaches on are meant to highlight the same reality, whether it's prayer or giving to the needy or fasting. And that reality is this, that Jesus is primarily concerned, not with our external behavior, but with the posture of our heart, with the posture of our heart. Just like the behaviors that we're meant to avoid, the behaviors that we are meant to engage are not designed to, to display our external righteousness, but they're designed to shape our heart into greater righteousness. They're designed to shape our heart into greater righteousness. Now, you've probably picked up on, if you've been following this at all, or if you're familiar with the, the Sermon on the Mount, that there is a great theme of greater righteousness through the entire sermon. This is a main thread, a big idea for Jesus in this sermon. And this is not to be confused with God's imputed righteousness, which is, as we've talked about in past weeks, what Jesus accomplished by taking our penalty, by taking our sin on our behalf. That's something that we could not do. This is the righteousness of our behaviors. This is the right the righteousness of our thoughts, the righteousness of our heart, the things that motivate us here on earth, which we are empowered to do when we get it right by the Holy Spirit, and it's the fruit of that full life that Jesus promises in 1010. I'm gonna read that verse to you because it's been at the theme or at the core of so much of what we talked about over the last few months. And I just wanna remind us what Jesus said about this. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So here's a reality in case you've forgotten or maybe you haven't been with us for very long. Here's a reality for every single person sitting in here, okay? This is just how it is. Satan hates you. He hates you. He wants to destroy everything good in your life. But he's tricky about it too, just like a thief. Jesus says, a thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's it. That's all the thief wants to do, but he's not obvious. A thief would not be a good thief if he was obvious, but he's tricky. But Jesus, the savior of the world, he came and he taught his disciples and he healed people and he was crucified and resurrected so that those who believe in him will have everlasting full life. Now, part of that everlasting life is this eternal nature of our future life, no doubt, right? Where salvation in Jesus, where we're gonna be in a better place, our bodies restored, heaven restored, but there's also a very much right now component 
of this full life that Jesus is talking about, right? He came that we might have full life today. A full life, sitting in this room, a full life. When we leave this place to go about the rest of our day, a full life at your workplace and all the things that you do in the days and weeks to come. That's part of what Jesus is saying. There is an eternal component. There's a right now component as well. And so the beautiful reality for every follower of Jesus is that he has given us full access to this full life today and forever. The journey of our full life on earth is centered around, this is what Jesus is getting at, is centered around aligning our heart with God's heart. The journey of our full life on this earth is centered around aligning our heart with God's heart. And the fruit of that alignment, what Jesus is getting at, is this righteousness, these righteous thoughts, this righteous heart posture that leads to a flourishing life. And the only way that we align ourselves with this heart is by doing what Jesus taught us to do. To be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, to do as Jesus did, or in other words, to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what he's getting at. And so that leads us to our passage for today. I think that background is helpful to understand and remember that this is very much about the heart and not the external behavior. So once again, Jesus is teaching on this greater righteousness. This time, it's in relationship to money and stuff, as, you, as we've read. So I want to look at this section. I want to look at, there's kind of four key ideas that Jesus hones in on, and they're all right there in the scripture. So we're going to reread portions of that passage. If you have your Bible open or on your device, I'll have it on the screen as well. But I just want to read these, these ideas. And the first idea is this, that Jesus starts off with right away in verse 19, is that storing up treasure on earth is the wrong idea and treasure in heaven is the right idea. So let me read this, um, these two verses to you, verses 19 and 20. It says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus begins by reminding his audience of the temporary nature of this world. And I think we lose sight of that pretty easily sometimes, right? Any good investor will tell you that the better investment is one that gives you greater returns that are guaranteed over risky returns that will certainly dry up, right? That's what any good investor, so if your investor is telling you anything different, let me find somebody who will do better for you, okay? <laughs> I just wanna throw that out there. In case you didn't know that, any good investor will tell you that, and Jesus is taking this same approach. But here's the hard thing for us. A lot of our returns in Jesus' kingdom are eternal returns. And they're not realized during our time on earth necessarily. This is one of the most difficult tensions in all of life for most people, certainly for Christ followers. And the reason is, is because if you're like me, which I'm certain you are, I like nice things. I do. There's nothing wrong with nice things. I like tangible results. Anybody like working with no fruit of your work? Of course not. That would be absurd. You would be a psychopath. 
and we like quick returns, right? So we like things that are tangible and we like them to get here quickly because I want to produce now. I want the Christmas tree up today, right? But Jesus reminds us that this and there will never be a substitute for treasures in heaven. The treasures in heaven where no moth or rust or theft or tragedy or any other potential threat can steal the fruit of this eternal investment. So often people give their entire lives to something only to have it snatched away in an instant. But Jesus is offering a better alternative he says, give yourself to an everlasting investment, specifically the kingdom of God. So that's the first idea. He leads with that. He continues to build, build with the idea number two. What, you're, what you treasure will determine what you pursue. What you treasure will determine what you pursue. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Now, we've all had something that we've really wanted, and if you're like me, it caused you to think about it way too much and work too hard to get towards it, um, only to realize that it's not really what you want, right? I remember when I began working in the retail sector, one of the things that's common in that sector, if you've ever done it, you know this, if you haven't, here's the lesson, you're going to work nights and weekends, right? Like, that's what retail is, because... Everyone else, that's when they can go shop. And so you're going to work nights and weekends. And for some reason, when I was in this sector, I wanted without, I just wanted so badly to have Sundays off. Now, of course, it was to go to church and do chores, right? <laughs> I had it in my heart that if I could just have Sundays off, that I would be so much more happy. But it turns out, that wasn't the case because eventually I did have weekends off and I still was not happy in that retail environment. I eventually realized that it was actually people who made me unhappy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But on top of that, what I find to be even more hilarious is God's incredible sense of humor because here I am in ministry working every Sunday for the rest of my life. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's just the reality. God knew that's not what I actually wanted. But I just like, I treasured this idea of having Sundays off so badly, and it would dictate how I live. It would dictate the way that I would think about life. When all along, God had me exactly where he wanted me, right? He had me exactly where he wanted me to learn valuable skills and to more importantly, be that agent of reconciliation that he talks about in a world where people who deeply need Jesus were all around me, right? But it highlights the fact that the nature of what you treasure will determine how you spend your valuable focus. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So idea number three, he continues. This is the third idea that Jesus hones in on. If you fix your eyes on earthly treasure, you'll actually miss out on the full life. Did you catch that? If you fix your eyes on earthly treasure, you'll miss out 
on the full life. Verse 22 and 23 says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Building on the previous section, Jesus addresses the consequences of misplaced focus, all right? So how can your body, or rather, how can your eye cause your whole body to be full of light or darkness? Well, in that time period, they viewed the eye as the window between the world and your soul. And so when the eyes were fixed on proper things, they were seen as healthy. But healthy is actually a less than helpful translation of what Jesus was getting at here. If you read in the original language, um, when Jesus says, if your eyes are healthy, it parallels the idea that he's hit on a few times before this, that you are a complete or whole person. So it's not, can you see with 20-20 vision, right? That's not what Jesus is getting at and that all of you with glasses are suffering, okay? That's also not what Jesus is getting at, okay? He's saying if your eyes are fixed on the right thing, then you will be like a whole person, that you will feel more complete. If your eyes are fixed on the wrong things, then your body will be full of darkness. And darkness, as we know, in the Bible is associated with sin and death. But if your eyes are fixed on the right things, then your body is full of light, which we know is associated with life and salvation and Jesus himself. So Jesus is warning his audience not to fixate on the wrong things and therefore become like a person who was lost in darkness. Like every good preacher, Jesus is building upon his sermon layer by layer. So here's where he's taken us. Don't make a bad investment by storing up your treasure on earth. That's a bad investment. Instead, fix your heart. He starts with the heart. Fix your heart on righteous things. And then after that, you'll be able to fix your eyes on righteous things and you will be full of light, guiding you into the righteous behavior and the full life that Jesus promised in John 10, 10. But then Jesus puts this big exclamation point in this next verse, and this is the fourth and final idea. He says, you cannot serve two masters. Verse 24 says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. <sighs> That's a tough one for some of us. Notice that Jesus did not say you should not serve two masters. He says you cannot serve two masters. This isn't a choice in the sense that you're like, eh, I don't think I should do both of these things. He's saying, you're gonna serve one or the other and the other is gonna be out of the picture. You're either gonna lose them altogether or you're gonna despise them. And of course, we see that he's contrasting these two masters as God and money or stuff. In that ori original language, mammon, which is like everything of value in our lives. Now, there's a sickness inside of some people I'm gonna raise my hand and just tell you that I'm one of those people that when someone says they cannot do something, they make it their mission to do that thing, right? Anybody else in here when someone's like, you can't do that, and you're like, I'm, now I'm going to do that. <laughs> That's me, unfortunately, for my wife and many other people for that matter. But in this particular case, that is the worst idea, 
okay? This is not a challenge to try to do both of those things. Jesus is not looking at the people who suffer from that syndrome like I do and be like, go ahead, try it. Maybe you'll be great at it. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, money is a good tool. It's a great gift. It's a useful resource. Jesus is not saying that money is bad. But money makes a terrible master. It makes a terrible master. And so often, it consumes us. And this is true for people in every tax bracket. No matter where you are on that scale, it's easy to be consumed by money. So how are we supposed to treat money? I know, maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you're new, you're like, oh great, they're talking about money again. No, Jesus is talking about money. We're just reading what Jesus says, I promise, okay? What are we supposed to do with money? What are we supposed to do with the things that money can bring us? How are we supposed to think on these things? Well, thankfully, Jesus is gracious enough to respond to this question in the very next section. So I'm going to read to you that last section in its entirety, and then we'll talk about it. In verse 25, if you want to follow along in your Bible, also it will be on the screen. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the, clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble, trouble of its own. So Jesus, with this incredible wisdom, responds to the very thing that everyone in that moment and everyone else who's ever thought about money regarding this passage has ever thought how am I then, as a Christ follower, supposed to think about money? And here's his response. Your heavenly Father knows exactly what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. Every time I, re I read this line this week as I was preparing for this certain sermon, I was like just led back to ask myself this one set of questions. And I'm, I'm, I'm honest when I say it was pretty uncomfortable. It was really uncomfortable for me to re reflect on this, but it was really necessary. And I think that we should think about this as well. Whose kingdom, this is the question, whose kingdom am I seeking first? 
Am I seeking his kingdom first or am I seeking my kingdom first? Am I seeking his righteousness or am I chasing what I think is right for me? Unfortunately, I am much more inclined to seek my own kingdom and my own righteousness and then, you know, and then look to his kingdom and to his righteousness after it feels like my own stuff is satisfied. But Jesus is saying that's just the most backwards way to live your life. That is the most backward way to live your life according to this teaching from Jesus. Now I've learned over the 38 years of my life that how you spend your money is far less important than the grip that money has or doesn't have on your heart. What you actually do with it as a tool is far less important than how it masters you. And the reason I think for that more than anything, especially as I revisit this passage over and over, is that if your heart is in alignment with God's heart, and if you're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first, then how you spend your money will follow where your heart is. Jesus already said that. If your heart is in alignment with God's heart for humanity and for this earth, and if you are seeking his kingdom and seeking his righteousness, then your spending will fall in line with where your heart is. And Jesus, just like he did in previous sections of this sermon, turns this lesson of money and treasure around and into an audit of the heart. He turns these thoughts about treasure and the wrestling that we do and where do we invest and where do we spend, how much to save, how much to give, are we generous enough? And he says, let's start with the heart. It's an audit of the heart. He says, turn your focus to matters of the kingdom. Turn your focus to matters of righteousness because your heavenly father knows exactly what you need. And maybe, maybe this is you, okay? This, has definitely been me at times. You're thinking, okay, well, God might give me what I need, but what about what I want? I'm just being honest. What about what I want? And then I remind myself, have you already forgotten the passage in John 10, 10, that Jesus came so we might have a full life, not a barely scraping by version of life, a full life. And that scripture tells us that we have a good father who is the source of every good and perfect gift. Everything that's good and perfect in gift is from God. And like a good father, he wants to bless you. But the gift that is more valuable than getting everything you want is the gift of learning to want the right things. And God loves you too much to give you over to money as your master. God loves you too much to give you over to money as your master because you cannot serve both God and money. He will not stand for you serving anyone else but him or anything else but him. So here's my encouragement. Instead of thinking that you don't have something because you don't have enough money or you're not doing it right, or you're not good enough, maybe start thinking in this way. What level of control does money and stuff 
have in my life? And how is God trying to extract that from my soul? Instead of thinking that you don't have enough because you don't have enough money or because you're not living right or because you've done wrong things, it's actually the reverse. God is being gracious by extracting the desire, the control, the mastery of money on your life. So I ask myself, in what ways am I in danger of serving money? And how is God trying to remove that idol from my life? Now, I can tell you from personal experience that every time God calls me into and really calls us to be faithful in his commands around money, to be generous with our money, he is graciously giving me and you the opportunity to exercise your freedom from the mastery of money. God does not need our money. He wants us to be free from being mastered by it. So he gives us these opportunities to be generous, to give, to be faithful to his commands around money. And sometimes it feels really tight, like a muscle that hasn't been exercised or stretched in super, super long time, right? You get out there and like you make one move and your hamstring pops, right? Like sometimes it's that tight. Sometimes it's like, oh, this is so painful. But the more you exercise it, the more you work it, it comes into compliance. It's more pliable. And then God reminds us, on top of that, don't you see the birds of the air? Do you see the flowers of the field? They have everything they need to flourish. And guess what? You're way more valuable than they are. You're way more valuable to me than those birds and that grass. So exercise those muscles. Be free from being mastered by money and stuff and treasures on earth. And the more that we're able to align our heart with God's heart for his kingdom, the more we're gonna embrace and live into that full life. Jesus ends with this reminder, and this is how I'm gonna close so the band can come up. We're gonna do communion in just a moment. But I love this, end, this ending to this sermon because he just went through kind of idea by idea about like money and stuff and how we're supposed to think about it and how we're not supposed to be mastered by it. And then he says, you don't have to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. That, that grip that that earthly treasure tends to have on our lives God just says, don't worry about tomorrow. I have everything you need and I know exactly what you need to do everything I've called you to do and to accomplish everything that I've called you to accomplish. And this gift he's giving us in this particular part of the sermon is that he wants us to be free from trying to serve both money and him because we cannot do both. But he's far less concerned about what you actually do with your money because it's a tool. And he's far more concerned about the posture of your heart. And that's just not here. That's over and over in scripture. So I'd like to pray for us and then we're going to receive communion. Will you pray with me? 
God, as we receive these words from Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew, I pray that we would not be burdened by the external behavior, but that you would continue to work in our hearts, to teach us how we cannot be mastered by both you and money, and so that the work in our life that you're doing, the challenges you put in front of us, the opportunities to be generous, the call to be faithful, all of those things are your gracious response to give us more freedom. What a gift that is. So I pray that we would engage those muscles, that we would flex those muscles, that we would be far less concerned about our own kingdoms and far more concerned about your kingdom and far less concerned about what we think is right for us and far more concerned about what you think is right for us. May that be the cry of our heart today. And God, as in all things, when we fail, we're so thankful for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, that your salvation is through faith in Christ alone, that we cannot earn it. What a gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, on your seat, you should have a communion cup with a wafer on the top there. In just a moment, I'll pray for these elements, but I think it's just appropriate for us to remember as Jesus talked about this with his disciples in the upper room, he said to do this as a remembrance, a remembrance of what he's done. And so here's what is incredible. So for the non-Christ follower, for somebody who is not a disciple of Jesus, this is just a wafer and juice, and you're welcome to consume it as that, although these are not that great tasting. Um, so I wouldn't waste the calories, but you're welcome to. But as a Christ follower, these are actually incredibly important, cheap pieces of juice and cracker because they represent so much more than their value. Just like the treasure in heaven, and Jesus instructs us, the things that we don't always see and feel, there are other things like communion that help us to remember and tangibly experience the grace and mercy of Jesus. So every time a Christ follower participates, they get to reflect on that great gift that Jesus gave us that he came and died for us and for our sins to redeem us and sanctify us. And this is the practice of remembering that. And we can taste it and we can touch it and we can feel it. What a gracious God we have. So I'm gonna pray for these. Then you can receive the elements and then we'll stand and sing. If you would like more prayer, I just wanna invite you underneath the storm sign after we receive the communion elements, Karen, Sherman will be over there to pray with you. Please get prayer if you need it. She would love to pray with you. And uh, I know God would love to hear those prayers. So God, as we lift that up, as we lift up today and close out this time with communion and song, God, I pray that you would uh, continue to work in our lives through your scripture and through our worship and through this community. And as we receive these communion elements and remember what you did on the cross, May we feel that, may we taste that, may we touch that, may we be blessed by this tangible reminder of such beautiful things. We thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen.
Go ahead and receive the elements and then stand and sing with